This episode of the podcast is dedicated to the memory of Mrs. Hazel Davis, Andrew's mum, who died shortly before Christmas in 2020. So welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast with me, Alan Rhys Shivers. This week's guest is Andrew Edwards. Andrew is a three times published author. After more than a decade working as a statistician for Manchester United Television, or MUTV, in 2015 he wrote his memoir, I've Got a Stat for You, My Life with Autism, which includes testimonials from some well-known figures we'll hear about from Andrew later on. His most recent works are A Vision of Exercise and Steel Bat and Ball, a pictorial history of football and cricket in Brembo, 1882 to 2015. I began by asking Andrew how he got into cricket. At the age of six, uh, my mother, who unfortunately suddenly passed away just before Christmas, the week before Christmas, very suddenly, uh, she was going through a tough time in her life at the time, in, in the summer of 1991, and she put me in front of the BBC live coverage of the Wisdom Trophy on uh, England West Indies on BBC. And one thing led to another. And uh, it's uh, the listening to the commentaries of Richie Benno uh, harvested a lifelong interest in the sport of cricket. And that's something that I'm, I can plan on getting. Oh, well, as we, speak, as we speak at the moment, it's the day before the start of the India-England series uh, and that's going to be on Channel 4, and I'll be up at 4am, which I'm, t- I'm sort of that way inclined anyway to get up at 4am normally. But, uh, but yes, I'll be getting, trying to get my best to get up as early as possible and write tomorrow. So, and like I said, that, my mother just parking me from the television, BBC's commentaries of the Wisdom Trophy in 1991, just harvested this lifelong love affair with the sport of cricket. And Richie Benno, obviously, a good introduction to you to to cricket commentary and that yes. side of things. But yes. what what are your what are your earliest memories of cricket and from that series? Then uh, my earliest memories of that series are quite vague of that particular series. I do remember the Sri Lanka one-off test that summer at Lords when Alex Stewart hit his maiden Test hundred, and Alex Stewart was. My boy, my boyhood cricketing hero when I was growing up. Uh, I used I'm, I'm, I'm my mother, who was my net bowler in the front and back garden. She uh, she used to bowl to me, and I used to try and twirl the bat like Alex Stewart used to quite memorably used to twirl it twirl his bat in between deliveries and do jacks on the spot like he always undertook between deliveries. And so Alex Stewart was my first cricketing idol, but there's the, the, the but that very much the proper memories are very much harvested uh, the following summer against Pakistan, the famous season Wazim and Waka, the ball tampering, uh, the reverse swing, England collapsing several times after getting very promising starts into very promising positions and then that's when the reverse swing came in and I remember that, remember putting everything about that series so Mm. And, and obviously Pakistan won the World Cup in 92 as well. Yes, they did. Yeah. But, but, but what, what, what some people may forget 
is in the group stage, which is like the 2019 World Cup, had all the nations, all the nine, had all the nations in. England had bowled Pakistan out for something like 67 or 72 in one match. And if England would have knocked those runs off without the rain, then Pakistan would have been eliminated because they've very much made a very, very slow start in the competition. And then there was like the the, the very famous quote of uh, Imran Khan, fight like corner tigers, wasn't there? So, but what I what I remember, that's, you know, by the summer of 92, Imran Khan had retired and Javed, me and dad was the captain of Pakistan. And it was a very memorable series for many reasons. It's just, it's, it was a series that, in one way or another, ended up in the high court four years later when Pakistan next toured for the Test Series. And it was just everything about it. Alex Stewart coming to the ball, actually hitting his Test best score. Uh, Gower returning and then then playing his last Test. Gooch being the captain and Gooch at the peak of his powers. And just, it was it was a really, at the end of the season, Mickey Stewart resigned as England coach. It was just a very memorable series. And it's one of the most memorable series, I'd say, in my lifetime. Let's talk about yourself as well, then, Andrew. What are your earliest memories of playing cricket, then? Did you play as a, as a youngster growing up? I played one match for Gwersal under-15s when I was 15. And then I trained with Mark Wheeler and Max, and Mark Wheeler, you may, remember, you may know, won the National Village Knockout in 1980 and 1984 at Lords. Uh, I, I trained with them, trying to get in the second team. But I didn't play any games. And then, actually, at the age of... Well, actually, most of my... I've played 22 matches for Chirk Seconds, but I didn't start playing for them until I was 33. And I'm 36 now. And that was really my first experience of really playing at the age of 33. Because before then, I watched loads of, watched loads of cricket. I was a Lancashire member for 11 and a half years. I had to go to watch Lancashire during the season at least a couple of times a week in the... Early to early, mid to late noughties, and but actually playing, I never had really much experience of it growing up because with the autism, it wasn't in that year. It wasn't as easy to actually play competitively as it as it would be probably now. But the thing is, it was very much it, it was something that I came to late in life and. And I can explain later on the story regarding it, which is a very happy story in more ways than one. Let's go away from cricket for a little bit, Ben. Okay. You've kind of made your name as a broadcast statistician for Manchester mm. United Television. Tell me a little yes, bit about that, how that came about. Well, I'd been a guest on the... I, I'd phone, I used to phone the channel up on the talk shows and got on a couple of times and won prizes... In the for best call in the days you could do that, and then so Alex Ferguson visited my school special school in Wrexham on Friday the sixth of April two thousand one, three days after United lost to Bayern Munich at Old Trafford in the first leg of the Champions League quarter final, uh, Paulo Sergio I think scored, and a late goal, and then he officially opened the premises of St Christopher's School, and then he. He very much, and then one thing led to another. I was interviewed by a new TV when I was there. Then when I passed my GCSE history certificate that I got in six months, and I got a B in six months, I was invited to Carrington United's training complex, and Sir Alex presented me with it, and I was interviewed again by MUTV. So when I was coming to workplace, when the school got in touch, they'd been turned down. 
But this is quite poignant saying this now because my mother got in touch with them, phoned them up and explained about me and she won them over. So and ended up with one day work placement, Wednesday, September 11th, 2002. United played at home to Bolton and I went in the match at night. United lost 1-0 to Bolton for the second consecutive season at home. Kevin Nolan scored the winner in both, scoring in both matches. And it was it was a one one day that turned into eleven and a half years working for my the club of my boyhood idols. So what did that role involve then as broadcast statistician? Well, the first seven years, seven and a half years certainly were my favourite times there. It involved collating any statistics on the opposition, the first team, reserves, or any of the live matches, any documentaries that were on the station, any well-known personalities who were on the station as guests, anyone who anyone who appeared on the channel and just, it was very, very fulfilling. And then my role, well, September 2009, my role changed and that was to log every minute of a football match. Watch 90 minutes of a football match. Wonderful, wonderful. But when you're trying to log repeatedly the clips and you don't get to actually watch the game, even on the, on the laptop screen, Wayne Rooney, on target, header, three-star, and such matters as that, it kills the love of football and it kills the love of the job. And the job became more of a hassle. But then we can't always enjoy such matters as, as that. It was a very, very fulfilling job for most of the time I was there. But obviously your love for cricket has continued as well. You left Manchester United then and uh, you wrote, I, I've got a stat for you, my life with autism. Tell me about that book then. Well, I thought I'd led an interesting life with the autism, probably overachieved compared to what the specialist said to my mother upon diagnosing me at the age of four in April 1984, where he said to my mother, go home and watch Rain Man. It's likely your son will be institutionalised. I think I proved him, him incorrectly. So, and I started with that and all other achievements and so forth. I had a very checkered schooling. And then I decided to write it. And it took, how long did it take to write? It took about nine months to write my first draft. Wrote off to publishers. The autism publisher, Jessica Kingsley Publishing, turned me down in a day. A couple others turned me down. We went through all, me ma went through this big book of the authors and publishers yearbook, society yearbook and publishers yearbook and, we're hitting a dead end. So then what we did, we got in touch with like media, broadcasting and so forth, and broadcasting organisations to see if they were interested in the story. At the insistence, not insistence, at the insistence of my nephew, who's always been a very, who's always gone to test matches with me and follow Lancashire with me, uh, uh, he, he said to my ma, why don't you phone the Today programme, Nan? So, so he did. And then they rang me back. I was about to watch 12 Angry Men I was in Salford. And uh, I was in a coffee shop, my favourite coffee shop at the time, in the Northern Quarter in Manchester. Couldn't really hear it, but anyway, the, the lady arranged to speak to me the next day. I actually got on to the second most most listened or watched breakfast show on British, tele British television or radio and more than and, and bear in mind that today progress more listeners than any television channel at the at the equivalent time. 
there's only the Radio 2 breakfast show that gets more listeners or viewers. And I got onto it on the back of having no physical copy of a book, not even a Kindle, just sending three chapters of what, of what it was about. And I got on. So it's John Humphreys was at his home in Ravens Court Park in North London. About a week later, England were about to start the Wisdom Trophy, the first test. It was the test where Jimmy Anderson became England's leading wicket-taker of all time, head of both of them, test that England should have won comfortably. They got, they got an email off a publisher. So I got talking to him. It was a gentleman called James Lumsden Cook from Benny and Kearney, a Staffordshire-based publisher. Got talking for half an hour. At that point, I seem to recall that Alistair Cook had just been bowled by Keenan Roach, I think he played on. This was in an era where, where before the last test, I see Cook had gone two years out of Test 100. And then I met up with James Lumsden Cook in Cinderbox Coffee in Chester, Chester City Centre, the following week. And at the exact minute near enough, exactly a year to the minute that I was made redundant from Manchester Television, I signed on to write my memoirs, which came out the, which came out six months later. And in terms of your memoirs, then, it had widespread support and testimonials. Let me just name some of the people who gave you a testimonial. Robin Ince, Will Greenwood, Stuart Lee. What was it like to have those people recommend your book? Michael Atherton recommended the book as well. I got I had a lovely email off Michael Atherton. He had a copy of the book and he, he gave me a lovely testimonial from that email. It sold about 1,120-odd copies. It's done really well, to be honest. It's, and it's, it's had a lot of media. I keep all my cuttings religiously, but and, I, and I've had about 10 albums worth of cuttings. Yeah, the book's achieved really well. And I, I think what one of the best compliments I've received is off people I met before the pandemic when I was out giving non, I was out uh, undertaking non-profit speeches. And I always used to say, reading the book is like talking to you now, which I think is an enormous compliment. So obviously you've mentioned already that the book is partly titled My Life with Autism. Tell me about your life with autism and cricket. Regarding cricket, uh, I've always been the type of person to get up early in the morning when England have been touring in the subcontinent or in the Antipodes, Lancashire and my county. Many, several reasons behind that. Geographical convenience. But then I did also grow up in the 1990s when Lancashire were the dominant one-day force in, in domestic cricket. When most of the England one-day side was playing for Lancashire, I still say the one the most obvious candidate to play for England amongst them, certainly the all-rounders, never actually play, only played one one-day international and should have played many, many tests. Glen Chapel. Every Saturday of an Old Trafford test, Saturday, I wanted to have a test going back to 1998. I'd been there for, and also back in the day, I used to go see the England players train at Old Trafford, and they were always very, very approachable. And you get all the autographs. It wasn't like that for Premier League football, as I can assure you. Well, the cricketers, Kevin Peterson could be a bit prickly, but uh, as you'd expect, but apart from that, they were all very, very, very approachable in that era, which is going from about 99 to about 2010. They were all very approachable. And then I became a member of Lancashire in the summer of 2004. I'd go watch them probably during the cricket season, two days in a week, especially championship cricket. I went to finals day of the T20 in 2004, which you may remember Glamorgan were in. They lost to Leicestershire 
And I, I went to watch Lancashire lost to Surrey by one pub. Lancashire have always been my county, really. And I, I don't always get, because I think certainly people from over the border, I don't know about you, don't actually always understand the geography of Wales and say, well, why don't I support Glamorgan? Well, well and I can get to most of the county headquarters by either road, by either road or by public by train quicker than what I could get to Sophia Gardens and Wrexham. When you live in the northeast of Wales, the southeast of Wales seems so far away where even certainly certain aspects of southeast England don't seem as far away, certainly by train. So I guess that means then the local cricket for you becomes maybe more important then, given the geographical complexity of Wales. Well, not really. Initially, no, because Lancashire is very, is very close to, Old Trafford is very close to, to Wrexham. It's 55 minutes drive away, which is very, very, very close. And the club I play for now, Church, actually don't play in a Welsh league. We play in Shropshire. It would be our third season in the Shropshire League this, this coming year. And I think coming from the northeast of Wales, I always more readily identify with the northwest of England, especially Chester, Liverpool, Manchester, than I ever would with South Wales, anywhere in South Wales. There's no respect to the inhabitants of South Wales, it's just the geography. And like I said, Lancashire have always been my county and always will be. You mentioned Chirk there. How did you get involved with them? Uh, it was the summer of twenty. It was towards the end of the twenty seventeen summer. I wanted to play for a club, club or a team who were glad of glad of my appearances and just glad of getting plays on the field. So it was forty over game. We put on about two hundred twenty yard in forty overs. So we're just losing five. Anyway, when we came to when we came to field, uh, I was fielding at. Mid, mid, mid off, mid, mid off, I was feeling it mid off, or mid, mid on, I was feeling that. And the ball came to me and I dropped a catch, a very easy catch, but I wasn't wearing my sun hat. So then I put my sun hat, I mushed and put my sun hat on, obviously. And then, then two overs later, a catch came to me and I don't, I knew I had this. And it was a much harder chance, to be honest. I caught it, grabbed it, ran round like Imran Tahir on acid. Well, the, my teammate, well, my, my teammates are trying to think, was he going to celebrate with us? So I just, I was very memorable. And that won the champ, Dave Kelshaw's champagne moments of the season at the club presentation even again, St. Martin's also Street in February 2019. And I've taken eight wickets for the club in 22 pieces, averaged about 32. Last season, I wasn't bowling too well, so it was a bit lower than that. But every time I take a wicket, it's like Imran here on acid. So I go really excited when I take a wicket because it means so much to me. And they've just really accepted me, really accepted me for who I am. There's actually another autistic player in the seconds. who's actually a girl, lovely girl. But there's very much... Also, the club recently at the AGM on Zoom appointed me as Officer for Diversity, which is very nice. And actually, there's a very nice point in the club last night at a committee meeting on Zoom, agreed to... Rename the nets as a memorial, as a as a permanent memorial to my my mother Hazel Davis, who sadly passed away on December eighteenth, twenty twenty, age of seventy seven. It was very sudden, and the club have, the club have agreed to wear black armbands the first game for both teams in the Shropshire League in twenty twenty one, and to have a permanent memorial at the ground. Uh, rename the nets. 
let's talk a little bit about your mum then obviously she's had a massive impact on your life and as you say you know it was a very sad loss for you just just tell me a little bit about your mum then well she was a she was a latin american ballroom dancer when she was younger she represented wales at the royal albert hall and she had me quite late in life she was 41 when she had me and I was the th- I was the third I was the youngest child. I was the third of three. From the age of six, she very much reared me on her own with a little bit of assistance from my older sister Melanie. Uh, what a very close family. Mel- Mum just did everything. She she fought bought tooth and nail to get me school placements, which weren't easy at all. She fought for everything she had to get for me. Just absolutely everything was a fight, and she just fought for everything. She was the most inspirational, most caring, kindest. But most superhuman, never give up, never give up spirit that I'll ever come across. Because I don't think if I ever get married or so forth, or have a long term relationship, I would ever come across someone as special as my mother. Because she just won't. Because she did everything for me. Like, I mean, like I say, my sister, me, my sister, and my mother have always been very close. Like in the last six years of her life. Me, my sister, and her were very. We just spent every, most of this every day together. Ma never missed. Ma paid for my my sessions four mornings a week, and for Melanie, for a couple for Melanie, rain or shine, and she turned up to all our sessions, rain or shine, for three and a half years. Three and a, well, just over three and a half years. Then it wasn't until the week she passed away that she didn't go to the gym with us, even. Six days before she passed, she even was able. She even made an enormous fuss and was in decent health to see her great granddaughter Olivia. With it. it was she. She did. She kept her faculty. She kept her mind, and she was very. She was never frail. Never ever frail. So yes, she, she was the best one I could possibly have. I guess she must have been very proud of everything that you achieved, given what she was told as well. Yes, she was. Yes, yeah, she was. She was very proud of me, to be honest. Very proud of me. And I was very proud of her. I gave a eulogy at the funeral I did. And one of the sweetest party gestures she's done for me and my sister, because my sister lives next door, we don't even have to go outside to each other's homes, is in the front garden, where we call the dog tree, which we planted in memory of our beloved dogs who passed away. Ma wanted to have her ashes buried there. And we're going to do that when the vaccine's not the band, I've done their magic, and when the weather's better. So many poignant memories there. Let's move on to your to one of your other books that you've written, then, A Vision of Exercise. This talks about the importance of exercise for people with autism. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process behind that book and maybe what, what brought you to write that book then? It's not just for people with autism. It's also regarding elite-level athletes. In fact, I interviewed an old family friend who was actually my man knew for over 50 years, Joey Jones, the first Welsh footballer to win the European Cup. He was part of the book. He, he, I interviewed him for, for it in the boardroom at Wrexham at Racecourse. I was an elite-level athlete, Paralympic medalist. I interviewed the trains at my gym, Sabrina Fortune. Uh, charity, charities I interviewed. And some people I got contributions from remotely. The book's forward was written by Sarah Taylor, the multi ashes and World Cup winning former England ladies wicketkeeper. What I tried to get up across was my experiences so that other people had them. Like, and I, t- I still train every day, Monday to Friday. 
And before I came out to you, I'd go running, go for long walks in, in the vicinity, the Moss Valley. Um, Let's that, talk about another project that you've been involved in as well, the, the Brimble Heritage Trust. You're an ar- assistant archivist there. Tell me a little bit more about the, the book Steel, Bat and Ball. Yes, the book itself. Uh, I, I, that came out just after I left MUTV. That was concurrent with the memoirs. Uh, I was volunteering there, listening to oral histories. There was a local history book in Mexico in the early 90s on Mosland Hegog football. And I thought I could do it in a different pattern to this and get break books to, to put it out. So then I did it on the football club and I did it on the cricket club. And I was quite pleased to find out. The people of Brumble were really, really nice with me. There's, there's still a couple there who treat me like their, like their extra, extra nephew, Norman and Claire Roberts. Norman was captain of the Brumble FC. Walsh Amateur Cup team in 1967 that won the Walsh Amateur Cup. And with the cricket side, I was uh, a couple of people helped me that you may may have heard of names. John Lloyd, who was the former Premier League referee and FIFA referees, the father of Glamorgan Limited Overs, Captain David Lloyd. And there was, there was other there was other people that looked like the characters. He he'd kept both albums from like the 1920s, because David Lloyd, the Glamorgan Limited over his captain, it's his family club because he goes back to like his grandfather playing Cliff Lloyd, who was manager of Wrexham. And, and he's got two uncles that played for the club. Well, two, one that played and one that umpires now. One of, one of the other umpire, one of the, one of the one that played was captain of, captain of Brumble when they were very, very good in the 90s. Because in the 80s and 90s, they were undoubtedly, Brumble were undoubtedly the dominant force of Welsh cricket, even though Mark Wheel up. In the late night, well, towards the end of the nineties, were actually in the Liverpool and District competition, which is probably stronger than any competition. Don't to suspect it in Wales, any competition in Wales, where you get Lancashire players playing that quite often nowadays, and and even Test cricketers like William Porterfield was playing in it recently. But uh, uh, Brumble were very much stronger than Mark Wheel, even though Mark Wheel won the National Village Knockout twice in eighteen eighty four. But Brumble were not eligible to go into that because the population of the village of Brumbo exceeds the limit of 5,000 to go in the National Village Knockout. So they were, they, were, they were ineligible to go in that. But they got to seven Welsh Cup finals in 12 years in the 80s and 90s, mid, in, the, in the mid-80s up until the mid-90s, winning three. And I think that probably that Brumbo side of the 80s and 90s is probably the best side certainly the North Wales has ever seen. I can't, best club side North Wales has ever seen by far. And like I said, North Wales cricket in the 80s and 90s was very, very strong. Like my club now, I think we won the league one year in the 80s. I think it was 83, but I'm sure whoever's listening to this in the club will correct me if it stubs you or someone <laughs> will correct me. Or Sean, Sean Walker. But uh, to, for Chirk to have actually achieved winning the North Wales Cricket League in, that, in the 80s was a fantastic achievement. You consider Brumble being the top dog, solo by Mark Wheel who'd won two Lords finals. Like much of Welsh cricket then, Brumbo obviously has its origins in in the industrial context of the area. Can, can you go back a little bit to the, the beginnings of Brumbo and tell us a little bit about that? Well, well initially, what started the, started the sport there in Brumbo was the temperance movement. I think it was the derbies of the temperance movement. And the people who, who were... Part of the temperance movement in, in 
the last quarter of the 19th century, the United Kingdom, used, used to like to take care of their workers, like make a healthy lifestyle, play football, play, play cricket, play other sports. And people of the temperance movement didn't drink, where that was, most people very much drunk then, or more than do now as a percentage. So they were, were, were all for getting up there employees in the local area to, to play sport. So that's what came about, such matters. And like like most football clubs, certainly in this country, it, it either came from steelworks, railways, or churches, really. Most most clubs, and, and, and Brumble was no different, because the football club initially was called Brumble Institute. And they played a pretty decent standard at the time. They got to the... Got, got to the latter stage of the Welsh Cup, but they weren't as, as successful as like Druids and all the other clubs of that era. But Druids, I used to follow home and away as a teenager, Kevin Druids, and I met some of my best mates there still to this day. But uh, like Steve O'Shaughnessy and Nick Hughes and so forth, Alan Rollins. But uh, uh, but yeah, but, but they're actually competing in a league. We're excellent at one point. Samia Rovers and Crew Alexandra in the early 1900s, but uh, but really, but, but, but really, the cricket, we, like I said, the best time of the cricket was the 80s and 90s, for the success was it, for, for it. But the football, like like with most Welsh clubs, really, in effect, have been non-league. The, the problem with, with, Welsh, with Welsh league football over the years was if they had been a Welsh Premier, before World War Two or World War One, even the standard would have developed into something higher because they'd have the history behind them, and that's the problem with Welsh football generally. Some of these clubs, under suspect, don't have the history, and they don't. Or if they've got the history, they've had interrupted history where they've played at a much lower level. So, so it's it's just very. I'm interested in all of that, to be honest. To be honest, I can battle off a lot of that. Like, like, like you see a lot of these non-league clubs in, in England that play in Conference North and so forth, or Conference South, or such Conference North, uh, full of history and full of support. I guess Brimble as well is another example of the, the connection between football and cricket in Wales as well. Exactly, yes. Well, the same with my club. Well, actually, we'll actually did separate entities of football and cricket at Brimble. And it's the same with, same with me, me at uh, Chirk. We actually play at the same the same ground as the football do, and it's not just Wales you get that. You get like a lot of village cricket grounds where the football ground shares it with the cricket ground. Like there'll be a few in Shropshire. I know Old Scott Heath is very similar because I played there, played there on the thirds ground, and the, the, the I think the seconds were played across the road. I took a good catch that day, and I took my best ever figures two for nineteen or four overs. So there's a lot of clubs at village level who. Over time, it'd be a bit of a, a, a part of like a social athletic association, and very and like got like a bolstered part, cricket, football, plus tennis. Or but so, so all, all along the lines, they are separate entities as well. Many thanks to Andrew Edwards, our guest on this week's pod. Please join us again next time for more tales about cricket around Wales. Willem Matrol.
Gwrs gyda chi stori yw'r hanni gyda ni. Mae croeswch i gysylltu e-bosiwch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com neu ewch i'n tudalu'n Facebook Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast neu i'n tudalu'n Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast or our Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod.